Well, open your Bibles, if you would, to Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20. As I said, next week we will go to John 8 and look at Jesus' statement that if you abide in my word and be my disciples, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And then I'll be gone two weeks, and on June 12th when I return, we will start looking at the third commandment in the morning service. Acts chapter 20, this is a good place to finish our study of Acts in the morning because Paul is leaving the stage, at least in a certain sense. Obviously, Paul will be the main character for the rest of the book. Paul's ministry as a free man ends, essentially, with this speech here in Acts 21, or Acts 20, sorry, starting at verse 13. Then we went ahead to the ship and sailed to Assos, there intending to take Paul on board, for so he had given orders, intending himself to go on foot. And when he met us at Assos, we took him on board and came to Mytilene. We sailed from there, and the next day came opposite Chios. The following day we arrived at Samos and stayed at Tregillium. And the next day we came to Miletus, for Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus, so that he would not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hurrying to be at Jerusalem if possible, on the day of Pentecost. From Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called for the elders of the church, and when they had come to him, he said to them, You know from the first day that I came to Asia in what manner I always lived among you, serving the Lord with all humility, with many tears and trials which happened to me by the plotting of the Jews, and how I kept back nothing that was helpful, but proclaimed it to you and taught you publicly and from house to house, testifying to Jews and also to Greeks, repentance toward God, and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. And see, now I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. But none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And indeed, now I know that you all, among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God, will see my face no more. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also, from among yourselves, men will rise up, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore, watch, and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone, day and night, with tears. And now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up, and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I have coveted no one's silver, or gold, or apparel. Yes, you yourselves know that these hands have provided for my necessities, and for those who were with me. I have shown you in every way, by laboring like this, that you must support the weak, and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, that he said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all, Then they all wept much and fell on Paul's neck and kissed him. 
sorrowing most of all for the words which he had spoken, that they would see his face no more. And they accompanied him to the ship. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for this insight into the ministry of Paul. We thank you that even without the mighty apostle, your kingdom continues. Though he is with you, the kingdom is still here, still growing, still driving back the forces of darkness and rescuing people from the gates of hell. Lord, we pray that you would help us to understand this text this morning. Help us to see and know the certainty of the kingdom. We pray in the name of your beloved Son, our Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, as we saw last time, Paul started in Ephesus. He was going to take a cruise back to uh, back to Jerusalem for the feast cycle and especially for the day of Pentecost. Then he found out that on the cruise boat he would most likely be murdered by the other Jewish pilgrims on the boat. So he decided to take a different route. He went back over to Greece, traveled overland for a while, came back to Turkey to Troas, where we saw him last week at the worship service where Eutychus died and was raised from the dead. And then from Troas, they sail down that western coast of Turkey around to Ephesus, which is kind of on the far southwest end of Turkey. So that's what they're doing in these first few verses. Paul then gives a speech to the elders of Ephesus, and he describes his future plans and says, this is it. You won't see my face again. They all start sobbing, and he gets back on board the ship and sails away. Why does Luke tell us about this? How does this relate to Paul's to Luke's point that the kingdom is certain? Well, the answer is this. Paul is going, but the kingdom is still coming. Paul is moving on. Paul's ministry will come to an end. But as Paul's ministry comes to an end, he hands the baton to the elders and says, the kingdom of God is going to keep coming. Whether I'm here or not, whether I'm ministering or not, the kingdom can't be stopped. The kingdom is moving ahead. So if you notice, this is the only speech in Acts that's delivered to those who are already Christians. All the other speeches are given to Jews or to open non-believers, Gentiles. It tells you something about the attention span of ancient people. It's a common thought that the ancients were stupid. All you have to do is read Acts to say, I think the ancients might have been smarter than us. Anyway, Paul gives this speech to the elders, but two things really in this passage, the travel in verses 13 to 16 and the farewell address for the rest of the chapter. What is going on with this travel? There's a blizzard of names. We went ahead to the ship, sailed to Assos, Mytilene, Chios, Samos, Tregillium, Miletus. What are these places? The answer is that most of them are islands. In those days, if you were taking a ship through the island-infested waters of the Aegean, you did not sail around the clock. I don't know how good the charts were, but certainly 
the compasses, the chronometers, the star sighting equipment. There was no way of being sure exactly where you were at night. And if you didn't know where you were and you're sailing ahead on an ocean that's as full of islands as that ocean, you are likely to destroy your ship within a couple of hours of the first time you try to sail at night. So they would sail during the day, sail from one little island to the next little island. And as it started to get toward nightfall, they would pull into a harbor at an island, drop anchor, and just hang out there for the night and then get up in the morning and sail on. Now to modern sailors who are used to working different shifts round the clock, this sounds hopelessly slow and ridiculous. But compared to the cost of losing the ship, it, it made a lot of sense. So they sail from island to island, down across the Aegean, from Troas, and their ultimate goal is the port of Ephesus, which is Miletus. What is Luke telling us? Well, as he records the detailed travel diaries, he's saying, first of all, I was here. Notice, we went ahead to the ship. We sailed from there. We stopped here. We came to Miletus. Luke is saying, I was there. I'm an eyewitness. I saw it. I knew Paul. You can take it from me that this really happened. And the second thing Luke is saying is that the kingdom is progressing. And here are some details. You want to know what time we raised anchor in the morning, where we stopped for the night? I was there, I can tell you. Now thankfully he doesn't do this for most of the book. But every once in a while he gives us an extraordinarily detailed, blow-by-blow, day-by-day account of the trip. Just to say, essentially, I can if I want. There's a lot of detail that I'm leaving out here. The kingdom of God is coming to all these places around the Mediterranean that you may have never heard of, like Mytilene. What's that? Well, in one sense, it doesn't matter what it is. What's important is that Luke was there, Paul was there, they were traveling together to get to Jerusalem. So they come to Miletus, the port of Ephesus, a few miles away from Ephesus. The boat parks, and Paul gets off and asks the elders of the Ephesus church to come and see him. He doesn't go up to Ephesus. He knows that if he goes there, he'll be there for weeks. So he just stays in Miletus and asks the elders to come. They come, and he gives them this farewell address. Five parts in the farewell address. The first is Paul's statement that he worked his tail off. You know how I lived among you. And he describes what he did. I kept back nothing that was helpful. I proclaimed it to you and taught publicly from house to house. Paul says, I worked hard day and night for three years. My goal was to make sure that everyone understood the fullness of Christian teaching. Paul didn't come in, give a few big speeches in the theater, and then move on. He was not afraid to go to somebody's private home and disciple them one-on-one. In fact, he did that all the time, he says, for the space of three years. In 1 Corinthians, he says, I worked harder than all the other apostles. And here, he makes it clear that he did. In fact, he even adds that these hands provided for my necessities and for those who were with me down in verse 34. 
Not only did I spend all my time teaching and preaching about the kingdom in public and in private, I also earned my own living. It's a pretty impressive testimony. Why is he sharing it? Not just to remind them, hey, I did a lot for you people. Be grateful. He's telling them how he did it because he's telling them how they need to do it. He's passing the baton to the elders. And in so doing, he's describing, here's how to hold the baton. Here's how to go on this race. Here's how to be faithful elders in the church. Notice too what he emphasizes. I taught. I told you about Jesus. Believing in Jesus doesn't get Christians martyred. Paul doesn't say, I believed in Jesus for three years among you. I talked about Jesus for three years among you. That's why there was that big riot at the end of chapter 19. Talking about Jesus is what gets Christians martyred. If you know how to keep your mouth shut, you're usually going to be fairly safe from religious persecution. Paul is specifically addressing the elders, right? guys like me, saying you're not allowed to keep your mouth shut. You have a job to do, and that job is to talk about Jesus, to make sure that people hear about Jesus. But he's not just inviting them to admire his behavior. He's inviting them to replicate it. With verses 28 to 31, he starts addressing the elders directly with an imperative. Therefore, take heed to yourselves. Which he repeats in verse 31 is, Therefore, watch. Be on guard. And if he's trying to tell the elders in a single word what their job is, their job is to guard. Watch. Look out, which is also why he calls them overseers. There's a big difference, of course, between overlook and oversee. We're not supposed to be overlookers. Oh, I missed that. Oh, I missed that too. No, we're overseers. We're supposed to watch and guard the church, protect it from threats, slaughter the wolves. There's a difference, similarly, you know, overlook and oversee. It's just like the difference between kickback and pushback. You want kickbacks. That means you put money into a contract and the corrupt contractor puts the money back to you. That's a kickback. Pushback is when you say, we're going to do this because this is the right thing to do. And everybody says, no, we're not. I'm not going to do that. That's too hard. The elders, of course, are not supposed to be taking kickbacks. They're supposed to be standing up to pushback. Be on guard. Oversee what's happening in the church. So what's the temptation of the elder going to be? It's always going to be to think, the church is humming along just fine. The wolves have been eradicated. It's a good day. It's a good week. It's a good year to let my guard down. I don't see any need to be particularly uptight right now. It's a good time to sleep on my watch. Paul says, elders don't do that. 
be on guard. Watch yourselves, watch the flock, watch the wolves, watch the false teachers, and remember my example. So elders, that's our call. To beware, to watch, to be ready to protect the flock. And Paul doesn't say, you'll be able to take a break every once in a while. The flock will probably be able to take care of itself here and there. It's got to be watched all the time. We saw, remember at the end of chapter 18, when Paul first came to Ephesus, they said, tell us more. And he said, no, I got to go. And he said at that time, Paul knew how to work hard and he knew how to take a break. Here we see that he knows how to work hard and he knows how to, how to retire, how to pass on the mission. Elders, I am no longer going to be watching the flock in Ephesus. It's on you. That's what he tells them. And he describes to them one further thing. In order to be fit to be an elder, you have to be generous. We've seen this theme over and over. Those with spiritual power have power over money. And those who lack spiritual power are ruled by money. So Ananias and Sapphira are ruled by money early in the book of Acts, and they're struck dead because money rules them. Paul says, Money did not rule me. I coveted no one's silver or gold or clothing. Yes, that shows us how much times have changed. Clothing used to be as valuable an asset as silver and gold back in those days when all cloth had to be made laboriously by hand. Now, clothing is very cheap. It would be funny for a minister to stand up and say, I never coveted anybody's clothes. But Paul says, I ruled money. I had power over money among you. And that power over money is the sign that he had spiritual power in the kingdom. So one of my childhood friends is a member of our sister church in Cheyenne, Northwoods PCA. I was talking to him last week and I said, you liking your new pastor? Oh, I love him, he said. It's so clear that he's not here for money. My friend just voluntarily brought that up. That was the first thing that impressed him about his pastor. There was clearly no what pecuniary self-interest involved in him being a minister. Elders, again, that's our calling. Paul says, I've shown you in every way by working like this that we must support the weak. Not, I've shown you in every way that we must enrich ourselves. I've shown you in every way that a faithful pastor is one with a comfortable retirement. No, I've shown you in every way how Jesus lived. How did Jesus live? Jesus said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Paul says, my whole ministry was driven by that example. I was about giving just like my Lord was about giving. 
Now, Jesus understands that there are people who say, oh, there are those out there who are about giving. Well, I'll be about taking. I will help them out. The old, if we're here for others, what are the others here for? Well, if we're here to give, who's here to receive? The answer, of course, is that within the body, we all give and we all receive. We bring our gifts to the body. We bring our needs to the body. Those who are too proud to give don't belong in the body. Right? Easy to say, I think this is a very generous body. What's much harder is the opposite. Those who are too proud to receive also show themselves unfit for the body. Maybe you have very few needs. Maybe you are well provided for. But you still need to be willing to receive from your brothers and sisters. To ask for help. To accept an invitation. Both are needed in the body. Jesus says it's more blessed to give than to receive. We tend to think, so I shouldn't receive anything. Except, of course, the church should meet my felt needs. No. We need to give and we need to receive both the callings of the people of God. Just as we're here, of course, to receive grace from the Lord, that's part of why we come to worship, but we're also here to give to Him. We're here to give Him worship, honor, glory, and obedience. Both of these things go together. So the Lord wasn't afraid of His giving being abused. He went ahead and died anyway. Paul wasn't afraid of his giving being abused. He went ahead and supported himself and accepted gifts from churches. Luke has shown us both of those things. He gave. He received. He lived a lifestyle that had power over money. When he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. So Luke shows us two things about kingdom citizens in action. When Paul's speech is done, they pray and then they weep. What does the prayer show? The prayer shows that Paul is handing the church over to God. I'm not going to pastor here in Ephesus anymore. Elders, this Ephesian church is yours under God. And that's what he says. I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, verse 32. How did he do that? He did that by prayer. Prayer shows our need, our dependence, our look outside of ourselves to God for help. Prayer is a way of saying, God, I can't do it on my own. It is a way of receiving. You give time to God in prayer, you receive from him as he gives you what you prayed for. Are you a prayerful Christian? Do you seize opportunities to talk to God? When friends are leaving, do you say, let's pray together? That's what Paul did with the Ephesian elders. That's how the kingdom makes progress, is through the prayers of the people of God, and especially that second petition of the Lord's Prayer, Thy kingdom come. And then the second thing we see is love. They all wept freely and fell on Paul's neck and kissed him. These are all grown men, elders in the Ephesian church. This is not a bunch of three-year-olds. Oh, my kindergarten teacher is leaving. Grown men gathering around 
and sobbing on Paul's neck and kissing him. Now we can say they were Mediterranean. They lived on the shores of the Aegean. They're Greek, they're Turkish, they're Italian. They're more expressive than us frozen northerners. We talked about that. Regardless, what is Luke saying? He's saying they really love Paul. And the love that grows between people who worship together is unlike any other love on earth. It's more durable. It's more lasting. It makes you truly family with one another. You can see somebody that you last worshipped with 15 or 20 years ago and say, I still love you. We're still friends. Wow, I haven't seen you in forever. How does that come about? Well, it came about in Ephesus. It comes about from going into the presence of the God of love together week after week after week. Building those relationships by worshiping together. Giving yourself up to the rule of Jesus, submitting to the kingdom, is what creates the ability to love like this. If the king of love your shepherd is, you weep when you hear that your pastor is leaving. You sorrow for the words which he spoke that they would see his face no more. Broke their heart because they loved him. So faith and hope are great. Faith and hope are expressed by prayer. The greatest of these is love. And it endures even through the departure of Paul into eternity future. So Paul goes back to the ship. Remember Luke brackets this passage with travel. Verse 16, he had decided to sail past Ephesus. Verse 38, he gets on the ship. And then the next verse, we departed from them and set sail and came to Kos, to Rhodes, to Patera, and so on. They kept on sailing towards Jerusalem. Paul is heading to Jerusalem, like Jesus. Jesus went to Jerusalem and was crucified there. Paul is heading to Jerusalem and he will be put in chains and imprisoned there. But though Paul is moving toward the exit, the kingdom is not moving toward the exit. The kingdom is not going away. And that's why Paul doesn't say, well, Ephesian elders, we built something great. It's going to be sad to watch it be dismantled here in the next six or eight months. Without me, I know that the church will not last. No, that's not what he says. He says, the church will last and you will care for it. I'm out of here. The church is not out of here. The church is sticking around. So the kingdom is coming. It's driving back the darkness. It's rescuing the people of God. And even when leaders in the kingdom leave, that doesn't shake the kingdom. See the reign of Jesus spread by submitting to your elders, by being a faithful elder. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the testimony of Paul. We ask that you would help us to be like him, to not count our life precious or as a value to ourselves. If only we can finish the race that you have appointed for us and stick to that course. Lord, we thank you that the kingdom is coming. That whatever leaders exit the scene, whatever apostles are dead and gone, 
You have handed the baton to the elders of each local church, to the elders gathered together in the regional church. And you have said, Occupy till I come. Keep driving back the forces of darkness. So we pray, Father, that you would help us to rule money, that you would help us to submit ourselves to you, that you would help us to pray together, that you would help us to grow in love together, that you would teach us the blessings of giving and the blessings of receiving and help us to engage in both within this body. We pray these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.